Daniel chapter 4, verse 35. God does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God does what he wants amongst the hosts of heaven as well as among the inhabitants of the earth. So far in this story of Samuel, this God of heaven who is working his purposes out has heard the prayer of a godly lady who was without a child. God has heard her prayer and mercifully given her a son and that very son turns out to be also his provision for a future leader for Israel, Samuel. And that God through Samuel will once again speak to his people. The word of God God was rarely heard before Samuel came. God's gift to Israel. Through Samuel and through another prophet, man of God, God warns Eli and his disobedient sons and then in turn has judged them and taken them away. God has allowed his ark to be captured, tabernacle destroyed, and as the ark is amongst the pagan Philistines, so God has asserted his supremacy, inviting them to bow before him. He has had the ark returned to his people and in the process have had his people returned to him. God, through Samuel, raises a stone, Ebenezer. Thus far the Lord has helped us. Through Samuel, through his judgeship, Israel has now entered the fourth cycle of this judges cycle where now the land is at peace and has been for a couple of decades, 20 years or so. Last week, but now Samuel's getting older. He's got two sons who are not like him. They're off track. They've wandered away. They're not following in the ways of God and he, for whatever reason, has appointed them to be judges to follow him. But they're not quality. So at least he has moved them as far south as he possibly can down to Beersheba out of harm's way. The elders becoming aware that the Philistines in the west and the nation of Ammon to the east have been encroaching upon Israel and now the Ammonites are rearing up again and there is a national crisis brewing and they come to Samuel and they say, Samuel you're old and your sons are hopeless. Give us a king. Well, God is your king. No, we don't want God as king. We want a king like the nations have got. We don't want to be different anymore. We want to be like the nations. That's what they say in chapter 8. And Samuel is displeased because he knows how dishonouring that is and how evil it is. But nonetheless, Samuel takes it, takes it before God in prayer. And God says to him, listen to them. Give them what they want. Even though it's not the right thing, even though it's not the best thing, God wants Samuel. Give it to them. And then Samuel, maybe a little bit, I'm not sure if he's disobedient or not, but God has said, give them a king. And when Samuel goes back to the people, he sends them home. He doesn't give them a king straight away. It's probably Samuel just awaiting God's direction, God's timing. Well, in these three chapters, 9, 10 and 11, which is a long story, and I encourage you to read it through again this afternoon. It's a moving story and there are some funny bits in it that'll surprise you. Well, did me anyway when I read it. 
And it's, this is God's reply, God working out his answer to the people's disobedient request, but God giving them the king. When we come to chapter 9, the story moves from Samuel and it moves to the hill country of Benjamin, not very far away, only 10 k's, five, six miles away. So it's in the hill country of Benjamin, from the city of Ramah, there's another little town called Gibeah which is where Saul's family comes from. We're told in chapter 9, first couple of verses, a little bit of background. Uh, there is a man there, a farmer. His name is Kish. He's a man of standing in the community, a man of prominence or of influence. It's the same word which is used of Boaz back in the book of Ruth. That there's some wealth, there's local influence, not national and that there's the genealogy given, and they're all unknown to us. None of them have any claim to fame or anything else. So it's an ordinary family, but with some local influence. And Saul is the son of Kish. Saul's name, interestingly, means asked for. Asked for. Chapter 8, Israel has asked for a king. And now God is going to find asked for in Saul. <clears throat> Normal ordinary event, 10 k's away from where Samuel resides. The family wake up one morning and the donkeys have gone. The equivalent for us would be the cars have gone or the ute's gone or the wheelbarrow's been stolen or something like that. They're important animals, probably expensive, but not important to Israel, not important even to us, but important to this family. And in this very ordinary, unimportant event, the dad sends a son. Not just the servants, maybe he didn't trust the servants fully, whatever, but he sends his son, Saul, with a servant. Go find those donkeys. They spend three days off looking for these donkeys. Saul invests all of that time and he doesn't quit. Not until he comes to the end of the three days, he makes a statement. So there's an indication that he's not a quitter. And we are told, I jumped over this, in the, first, in the second verse that he is tall, what did Brad say this morning? He was head and shoulders above all the people in Laos? Well, Saul was head and shoulders above all the people in Israel. He was physically outstanding, literally. Not only that, it says he was handsome. He was Mr. Israel. <laughs> and it says he was young. Chapter 13, verse 1, he was about 30. Or when you're my age, that's young. Prime of life. Physically impressive. And in fact, the Hebrew word for where it says he is handsome, it could also be translated and understood to be not just physically attractive, but impressive. He's a fine young man. He's a wonderful specimen. He's Israel's best. That's whom God is going to give, these disobedient people who have asked for a king and God is going to give them a king. And God just didn't give them anybody. He gave them the best. It's interesting, isn't it? Who through life choices, you'll know the story of Saul, through his life choices he will end up blowing it. But at this point, and in these chapters, there is no indication of that. He is a man who is outstanding, he's impressive, he's not a quitter, he's obedient and responsive to his dad. And he's a little bit like a farm boy a country boy, I guess I should say, which I can say because I am one, I was one. And he was 
disconnected, um, uninformed, not aware of what was going on in the nation of Israel. <clears throat> when he gets, it says um, in these, in the story of his meanderings and his wanderings, you come down to verse 5, when they reached the district or the land of Zuf. Where is Zuf? <clears throat> well, for those of you who are attentive Bible readers, go back to 1 Samuel chapter 1 and read verse 1. The land of Zuf is the land of Samuel's great, great, great grandfather. Saul has wandered, the one who was asked for, has wandered into the territory of Samuel whom he has never heard of. It's ten k's away. In chapter 3, verse 20, Saul is, uh, Samuel is known throughout all of the land of Israel as a prophet of the Lord, famous throughout the land. And here is Saul with his servant looking for donkeys and after three days can't find him and he says to the servant, uh, getting towards the afternoon on the third day, we need maybe to head for home. They hadn't gone in a straight line, they'd meandered all over the place, they were still, you know... 810 k's from home. He said, oh, we better go home because my dad's going to start worrying about the donkey and he's going to start worrying about me. Which turns out to be true. His perception is correct. That's exactly in chapter 10. We are given that information. So here is Saul saying, I think we should go home. And the servant says, hang on. Just in the town down here, Ramah, there is a man of God. Doesn't know his name. Servant does not know his name. But at least he knows that there is a prophet, a man of God. And Saul's going... Who? Saul lives 10 k's from where Samuel lives and he hasn't heard of him. He doesn't know him. What does that indicate? Well, perhaps that he's not only disconnected nationally, he doesn't know what's going on in the nation of Israel, but he's not that interested in it, nor is he spiritually strong. It would appear that he never attended any of the annual feasts. Otherwise he would have known Samuel. Here he is at the age of 30, spiritually well, indifferent, disconnected. Doesn't mean he was anti, just that God wasn't a significant part of his life. Something like that. That's the feel. And so then Saul goes with a servant. Uh, they're going to go into the city and before they get there, Saul says, oh, listen, if we're going to go see the priest, if you're going to go see the senior pastor, you better bring him a gift. <clears throat> I think that's spiritually true. If you're going to go into the associate pastors, I think you need to bring a bigger gift. <laughs> Am I out of this hole yet? No gifts. And Saul says, it depends how you read it, but it could almost be read, this is the son, the wealthy son with a servant. And Saul says, well, we haven't got any food, it's all gone, what are we going to give him? You know, What are you going to do when you go see the pastor? Well, I'll just give him a bit of stale bread, that'll do. But it's all gone. Saul says, what have you got? It could be read this way. And the servant goes, well, I happen to have a quarter shekel, silver coin in my pocket. We'll give him this. Okay, off we go. They get to the town. It's evening because the girls are coming down to get the water, which is what they did in the late afternoon. Um, and these young girls uh, approached by this tall, good-looking, dark-skinned man whom they engage in a conversation with. Times haven't changed that much, have they? <clears throat> and Saul says, and I... 
all the Persians do this. Is the seer here? Oh, I thought that was funny. Is the seer here? Surely we can translate that another way, but they all do it. And then there's this explanation that in olden times, the prophets used to be called seers because they saw things. Uh, to the girls, there's a seer here. And the girls say, yes, he is. He's just arrived. In fact, if you go into the city, you'll see him. Another chance meeting. So in Saul goes, goes up to this stranger who is walking towards him and he says to Samuel, do you know where the seer lives? And Samuel says, I am the seer. What's more? Um, there is a feast prepared and I'm going to the feast and you come with your servant with me. Let's go to the feast together. Now if you read the passage, it also says there's a a little aside where the author of Samuel has gone flashback. The day before, God had opened the ears of Samuel and the day before, this is the second day into the search, God says to Samuel, tomorrow at this time I am going to send you a man from Benjamin. He is the prince who will rule my people. God's words are interesting, isn't it? Not he is the king, God is the king. He he is the prince who will rule over my people Israel. And then the author says, verse 17, chapter 9, when Samuel sees Saul coming towards him, the Lord says to Samuel, that's him. That's the one I was telling you about. And so Samuel then meets Saul and Saul, Samuel obviously knows a fair bit about him already, takes him up to the feast. When he gets to the feast, there are 30 people gathered together. They're having this, whatever it is, this, special convocation and Saul who was invited to this meal he must have been hungry so he would have been appreciative of that he's put in the place of honour and this country boy doesn't understand that and then not only that Saul gives instructions to the cook bring out that piece of meat that I asked you to put aside and he brings out this choice piece the leg or the thigh or whatever it was and puts that in front of Saul and the cook informs him that this has been kept and reserved for you Saul must have been shocked, surprised, trying to figure all this out of what's going on. But we know this was God through these very ordinary events, these simple circumstances, God was at work. God was working his purposes out. The only reason we know that, by the way, is because God tells us. The only reason we know the donkey's being lost and these guys meandering their way through and bumping into Samuel is because that's what it says in chapter 9, 15 to 17. That God had orchestrated all of this. God was using all of this. It looked like random, chance, ordinary circumstances of life. And yet God was answering the people's request. God was working his purposes out. It's also interesting up until this verse, verse 15 in the story, there's no mention of God. Just like in the book of Esther, the Lord is not mentioned, but his hand is so clearly present in the person's life and in the story. Just like in Esther and just like in our lives, God is present but he's off stage at this point. He is not visibly, physically present, one day he will be. But until that day, he continues to be the God who is the writer, the author of the play. He is the producer. 
He authorises the actions. He's the director. He's moving donkeys. He's moving people. He's moving fathers to send sons. He's moving girls to go and do a very boring thing to get water, to bump into somebody. He's using prophets to bump into future princes and kings. He's the director. God is off stage. He's the sponsor. He underwrites and empowers and resources all of this activity that goes on in our world. And he is the reviewer. He is the one who writes a review for each show. He determines if there's going to be an encore and he determines when the season concludes. He is sovereign. He is working out his purposes. Bill Shakespeare, you would have heard of. He had the same idea in one of his comedies called As You Like It. You may not know that, but I'm sure you've heard this quote before. All the world is a stage and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances and one man in his time plays many parts, his acts being seven ages. All the world is a stage. We're just actors on it, living our lives according to the script that the author has written, who is producing, watching. God is involved. God's involved in your life. But we only know what God is doing when God tells us. We are spiritually blind without God's revelation. God's work is understood by God's word. In this story, God to Samuel. And so God's word, the Bible, which records what God has said, helps us understand how God works. That's why God gave us the Bible, which tells us a lot about who he is, what he is like, and how he works, what he does. And there's an incredible variety in things he does. And in this story... God can even use the very ordinary, the mundane circumstances of life to achieve his purpose. God is bringing a king to his people. God is at work in the world today and he is bringing his king, Jesus, to the world. That's what God's agenda is. He is working. So we need to read the Bible with attention and with understanding so that we can come to know the Lord better. We need his revelation. Let's continue the story. In chapter 9, the second half, Saul has uh, now met Samuel. He's had surprises, he's had shocks with being the honoured guest and a strange statement to him of um, all of the desire of Israel is fulfilled in you, Saul, and in your father's house. And Saul said, what? All the desire of Israel? I'm just a small country boy from a small tribe, Benjamin, from a very small clan within that tribe. I'm a nothing and a nobody. That's what he tries saying. But contrary to that, we know he's the best that Israel has to offer. And Saul, uh, Samuel says to Saul, at the end of that meal, it's now evening time, he takes him home to his house where he gives him uh, a bed on top of the roof. They have a bit of a conversation and they go to sleep. The next morning, chapter 10, this conversation continues. And Saul calls, uh, Samuel calls Saul up, invites him to breakfast and then sends him on his way. In the process of sending him on his way, he says to Saul, send the servant on ahead. This is private. This is secret between you and me. Takes a flask of oil, pours it over Saul's head. A symbol of the anointed one. You are the chosen one. You are the king the future king. 
And then Samuel says to him, having indicated you're God's chosen one, you're to be the king secretly between you and me at this stage. God's going to confirm it with three signs. Chapter 10, verse 2, he says, you're going to go from here on your way home and you're going to meet two men near Rachel's tomb and they are going to tell you, your father has stopped worrying about the donkeys and he started worrying about you. You need to return home. The donkeys have been found and returned. Now your dad's worried about you. And there's a lesson, which I'll come back to. Verse 3 and 4, there's a second sign. When you go on from there, you're going to meet three men. Going to be carrying, one's going to be carrying three goats, one's going to be carrying three loaves, and one's going to be carrying a flask of wine. They're going to give you two loaves of bread. Take the two loaves of bread. Third sign. And when you come home to Gibeah, uh, a bunch of prophets are going to come out in a procession. They're going to have musical instruments. They're singing and uh, they'll be praising and they'll be worshipping God together and the Spirit of God will come upon you and you will join them. Well, all these things, verse 9 tells us, all these three things happen in that one day on the way home. He bumps into these two men at the tomb of Rachel. They make exactly that comment to him. What does that mean? Well, I think there's a very subtle lesson there of God was indicating to Saul, I am the one who can solve your problems. While you're out looking for donkeys, while you were eating your feast, God was still at work. He found the donkeys and God sent them home. Saul, you need to rely upon God to work things out even when you are going about your ordinary circumstances of your life. It's a powerful lesson. Later on in Saul's life, he will struggle to let go and to trust God. He'll want to do it himself. Second sign, the three men with the two loaves, gives him the two loaves. God can provide for all of your needs. Third sign, the most significant of all, the one that the author gives more attention to than any other, is spiritual power is available for you as required for service. The anointing of the Spirit upon Saul empowered him for the task that was before him if he chose to rely upon God. Again, sadly, in the future, his choices and his disobedience will lead to the Spirit of God departing from him. Not talking about his salvation, talking about his empowerment for service. He will lose that. Verse 7, there is a very clear directive that Samuel gives him. When this happens, when all these three signs are fulfilled, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. And he's going to need that in the immediate future. Then in verse 8, there are some very clear instructions given to him. Remember this. It'll be months before we come back to it. But this, chapter 10, verse 8. In the future, Saul, when you come to Gilgal, wait seven days. I will come. I will offer the sacrifices and you will be empowered. That story will be Revisited, and that instruction will be disobeyed and it'll be the turning point in Saul's career. So now these three signs are fulfilled. Saul has returned and he's gone back home and there is this strange little story in verses 14 to 16 that when Saul gets home, his uncle, his father's kish, brother, where have you been? Looking for donkeys. When I didn't find them, I went to Samuel. Samuel, what did he say? What did he say to you? This uncle knows about Samuel. 
What did he say to you? He told me the donkeys had been found. Saul doesn't tell him about the kingship. It was private. It was between him and Samuel. Why are we told this? Is it to indicate Saul's you know, obedience at this point, that he's not boasting, he's not bragging? He's doing exactly what he thought he had to do. Saul knows that he's the future king. Samuel knows. We, the readers, know. But no one else knows. Maybe the servant walking home with Saul, he might know because his head was covered with that oil that Samuel had poured over him. But nobody else knew. God was at work and nobody knew. Just like for us. Unless God reveals it to us. Then in the end of chapter 10 you have this public ceremony where Saul calls all of the tribes together. He rebukes them for their bad choices and then by lots the tribes are taken and Benjamin is taken and the clans are brought forward and the tribe, the clan of Saul belongs to his taken and then within that clan Saul is taken. Somehow his name is drawn out of the hat or however they did it. And when they turn to find Saul, he's not there. And God says, he's over behind the baggage, he's hiding. So they go and get this scaredy cat king who knows what's coming and he's reluctant to, to take it on. And when they bring him out, the size of him, the beauty of him, everybody goes, wow, our king, long live the king. And they are rejoicing in this provision, God's very gracious provision. Then what happens? Saul goes back to the farm. That's where we find him in chapter 11. Story changes again. It goes back to over to the people of Ammon to the east and they have been invading and slaughtering some of God's people who lived on that side of the Jordan. And this particular king, um, what's his name? Doesn't matter, he's a baddie. Nahash, the Ammonite. When he captured people, he plucked out their right eye, disfigured them. Well, so they wouldn't rebel in future. You close your right eye, you can't see this side. You can't defend yourself. You could turn like this, but you're half blind. You're weakened. It'll stop rebellion in the future. That was his intent. Some of the people he had done that to, and so others had fled, and they'd gone to this little place called... uh, what is it? Jabesh Gilead. And when they got there, um, there's all these people in town. He invades and he says, uh, surrender. And they say, well, can we have seven days? Time out. Well, go and ask Israel if they can come and help us fight against you. And he says, uh, okay. Because <laughs> he doesn't believe anybody in Israel is going to come and help them. He knows that Israel is a disgruntled, disunited divided rabble you're not going to get anybody united to come defend you yeah you knock yourself out take seven days so they send to their relative Saul happens to have relatives in Jabesh Gilead providence of God coincidences Saul is on the farm when he comes back these messengers have arrived from Jabesh Gilead with this horrible news and the spirit of the Lord came upon Saul and he was furious Anger, angry with a righteous anger. And he took the two bullocks that he had been farming with, he slaughtered them, he chopped them up and he sent them throughout the land and he sent a message with it. You people come and assemble with me, we've got a task to do and if you don't come, what I have done to these oxen, I will do to yours. 
So the people come, motivated, united, with a strong force of 300,000 plus. They go up to that little town of Jabesh Gilead, send a message ahead, we'll be there tomorrow. Jabesh Gilead sends a message out to Nahash, the Ammonite king, and says, uh, tomorrow we will come out to you. He hears, tomorrow you surrender. What they were saying was, tomorrow we're going to come out and thrash you. And that's exactly what happens. The Israelites turn up united. He must be surprised. Israel is completely victorious. And at the end of the story, you have the people. Um, after this great victory, then Samuel says to the people, come on, let's go to Gilgal and there renew the kingship. Done it publicly once. Let's have a do-over. Let's do it again. So all the people went to Gilgal and there they make him king in their presence and there is great joy and great uh, sacrifices and celebration and even Samuel is impressed. This answer, a king asked for and a king given, physically impressive, but not a dud. God didn't give Israel a dud. He'll become one, but that's his choice. It's the things he did. But in the beginning, he was there with potential. So what does all this mean for us? <clears throat> Besides that, <clears throat> what do these lost donkeys teach us? This, in the ordinary events of life, the Lord is at work. His kingdom is coming. He is working to bring his king into the world. <clears throat> he has strategically placed us in our families, in our networks of relationships, in order that we might proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. And when that is proclaimed to all nations, then the king will come. God is at work, expanding his kingdom to bring the king into the world. The Lord Jesus taught his disciples back then and us now to pray, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come with all of its goodness, with all of its glory and blessings, with all of its peace, your kingdom in our life, in our church, in our world. Your will be done, Sovereign Lord, as perfectly on earth as it is perfectly done in heaven. That's the prayer. That's the promise. That's what we are to proclaim. That's what Jesus came and proclaimed. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus inaugurates the kingdom by his death on the cross. It's the beginning of it. He, announced, he is announced to be the king through his resurrection and when he returns, he will bring the kingdom in all of its fullness. Until that day, we chase donkeys. We go about our ordinary daily lives and God will be working through them, through our circumstances. Our God is a sovereign God. He is the one in control. In the major events, certainly. But the Bible also indicates, and this story indicates, even through the ordinary little events, God does things. He watches your steps. Proverbs A man plans, but the Lord directs his steps. Jesus said, not even a sparrow, Matthew 10, falls to the ground without a Heavenly Father's will. God takes note of the little things, of the details. But he doesn't necessarily let us know what he's doing. But just because we don't know, 
the Bible instructs us or encourages us to trust and to believe. Lord, you know what's going on. You're the God who works through the ordinary events and circumstances of life. <clears throat> My son, uh, an architect who has a deadline coming and he's got a major presentation to make on Tuesday, last week gets borderline pneumonia, has a week off, can't take a week off, he's got a deadline to meet. So he's been confined to home, he's contagious, he can't get near his wife or kids, uh, he's on medication and everything else and this weekend he's got to come up with a scheme to break a presentation on Tuesday. Can't handball it to somebody else, can't delay the meeting, people are flying in from overseas. What's God doing? Is God doing anything? Well, God uses circumstances and situations just like that. One of the things that God might be doing is that God might be trying to teach my son, you can't do it in your own strength. Trust me. Rely on me. Maybe. Chapter 10, verse 2. Maybe that's what God's doing. Maybe God is doing, allowing this to happen to my son so that he is humbled. Maybe God's doing it to him to encourage him to pray more. Maybe God's doing that to my son, Shane, and it's got nothing to do with him. Might have something to do with Gretel. Might have something to do with the family. Might have something to do with his father. God works through the normal, ordinary circumstances and issues of life. He's working. If we don't understand, we should ask him, Lord, what are you saying? What are you doing? I'll stay the course. Bad things happen. Lord, you know what's going on. I don't understand. I know you can change it. I'd like you to change it, but if you choose not to change it, keep me to be faithful and help me to be mature. To be, make the decisions that Jesus would make in these sorts of situations. This passage teaches us God is sovereign and that he works in the ordinary circumstances of our life, all of them, and that God is merciful. He's very kind. He's very gracious. His people have rejected him and he still provides the best. He is holy, righteous, just. He is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise, eternal, self-sufficient. He is glorious and he is majestic. And he is merciful. He is kind. And he is kind to you. Even when bad things happen, he is still sovereign and merciful, working his purposes out. We have a choice to make, to bow our knees before that king or to seek to live in rebellion against him. That's our choice. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we are you are sovereign God, that you work out your purposes not only in heaven, but among all the inhabitants of the earth, and that no one can stay your hand. No one has the right to question you to criticise you for you are not only holy and righteous you are gracious and kind and merciful so sovereign Lord open our eyes open our ears and help us to understand to see you at work and to join you in what you're doing 
where, Lord, we walk in silence. We still believe that you're at work. So help us to follow blindly, trustingly, believing and expecting you're going to bring the King into our lives and into this world. Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.